Welcome, everybody. I'm Nancy Jackson with my co-host, Carolyn Bowler, and this is the third edition of Elder Voices. It's a podcast that features the voices and stories of notable Colorado elders. We started this podcast after years of working in politics, and we were active with many communities. We've met many amazing people across the state that have accomplished important things. We think that they should be recognized and that you would be interested in their stories. Today, Carolyn Bowler and I are having a conversation with Wayne Gilbert, a man of many talents. He's a teacher, poet, dancer, actor, and the kind of man that brings wisdom and compassion wherever he goes. I met Wayne when we were both teaching at Community College of Aurora, where he was an instrumental part of a department teaching teachers to be more effective in the classroom. This group inspired a decade of teachers to strive for excellence in teaching. Overall, Wayne taught for about 37 years. In 2005, Wayne was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Now he uses poems about his experiences to advocate and support others with the diagnosis. His three books of poems, Magma Mystic, From the Ashes, and Sacred Chill, represent only a small part of his poetry. Wayne has facilitated poetry workshops for Parkinson's support groups, as well as for inmates within the Sterling Correctional Facility. He also performs his poetry to much acclaim often appearing with jazz musicians. Not only is Wayne a teacher and poet, but he's also a co-founder of Reconnect With Your Body, a group that holds dance classes and does performances for folks with Parkinson's. In 2018, Wayne received the Colorado Governor's Creative Leadership Award. He's a husband, father, grandfather, brother and uncle, and good friend. Wayne. We're really happy to have the opportunity to speak to you today. Did I get anything wrong in that intro? Um, no, I think it was. I think it was good. Thank you. Sure, sure. I know you've done a lot more, and we can talk about your work and your many awards and recognitions as we go along. Okay. So. We have the first question, which is, of course, the most general. And so just take a few minutes, if you would, and talk a little bit about your growing up and your early influences. Well, I grew up in the Air Force, which is to say my father was a, a career officer in the Air Force through the 1950s and 60s and into the 70s. Um, I always say I moved 18 times before I was 21. Um, and that was very formative. Um, I made a vow as a, as a child that I would never move again. Once I became an adult and chose a place to live, I would stay put. And I kept that promise. I came, came to Denver in, in the Denver area in 1971 um, and have stayed here all those years, as did both my brother and sister as well. Um, I went to college in Iowa, and uh, I graduated from uh, seminary here in Denver um, and began my teaching career um, officially, I guess you could say, in, uh, with a full-time position teaching high school in 1980, and that was in Strasburg, Colorado. Um, early influences, my goodness, I, I guess 
I had a couple of remarkable teachers as a, as a kid. Um, the church was very influential as far as being very involved um, as a family growing up. Um, I had a, an amazing professor in college, an English professor who, um, well, all these years later, I can still hear his voice in my head. And, and uh, you know how this happens, I think, when every, I, every time I went into a classroom, and even today when I approach a workshop, say, on Zoom, I still feel kind of his presence and I can hear his voice has become part of mine. And he's, he's really the reason I wanted to eventually uh, to become a teacher. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, so you kind of gave me a little segue into our next question, which is you started out in the ministry, and then you switched to teaching English. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I, I think that's really interesting. Well, yeah, I felt, I thought I was, as they say, in the uh, church, I was called to the ministry. I was mistaken, it turned out. Um, so when I left high school, it was my plan to go to college and study uh, and then go to seminary and then enter the ministry. It didn't work out that way. Part of the reason it didn't work out that way um, was the, uh, the draft. <laughs> Not that I was drafted, but um, I had to avoid being drafted. Uh, that my, was during Vietnam During days. the Vietnam era, yes, and my draft number was very low. Um, and I began, at seminary, I began to realize that this, this wasn't for me. But it took a few more years to be convinced that it wasn't for me. And I was a, a, a youth minister, a part-time youth minister for a while. I went to South Dakota, South Dakota State University as an intern chaplain there. I tried everything I could do to, to make it work because I really thought I was, that's the work I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. But I just never felt comfortable. I never felt right. Um, finally, I realized that the, that kind of work, at least to my understanding, required an answer man, and I felt like I was the question man. Hmm. Um, that I didn't have the answers. I didn't know what to tell people um, when they asked, especially the big questions. But I was interested in exploring the questions. But that way, even in seminary, I had trouble in classes because I was interested in, in exploring the questions that were raised, where everyone else seemed more interested in you know, compiling the answers and, and putting them in some kind of doctrinal or dogmatic form that then they could have access to later in order to you know, pull mm. out the appropriate file card. I'm oversimplifying and exaggerating a little bit. But that's the way it, that was my experience. So then I, I bet everything on entering the ministry, and it didn't work out. So now what? Right. Well, by then the war had ended, um, and the Vietnam War had ended, and so I, 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 I didn't know what to do. So I worked in a university library for a while, and I started two different master's programs mm -hmm. <laughs> trying to figure out um, 
what was next. And then I met uh, Alice, my wife, now, and I began our relationship then. And after, shortly after we got married, she said, well, you're always talking about teaching. Why don't you become a teacher? Like, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> like, like that had never occurred to me, you know? It's, it's really strange. So I went back to school and got my teaching certificate and um, went to work um, as a teacher. And eventually, uh, for a few years in the 80s, I taught high school English. Um, I was the entire English department at the time uh, <laughs> in the high school in Strasburg, Strasburg, Colorado. And then uh, I began working at the Community College of Aurora, um, part-time at first because I was a stay-at-home dad for a little while. And then a full-time position opened and I got it and, and I was on my way. That was... Right. When I got to the classroom, I knew, like, ah, this is it. This yes. is the place I belong. And I did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I will say just from knowing you that you bring a spiritual component to what you do. Um, and I think that's part of the depth of, uh, of your work, whether Thank it's you. teaching or poetry or whatever. It's got that that. Depth to it. Well, I used to, I used to, I've always said in the back of my mind, because eventually I, I left entirely organized religion, um, uh, but I always had in my mind that teaching turned out to be, you know, what I was, quote, called to do, and, and now I just, it, it was where I belonged, yeah, clearly. So another perfect segue to my next question. Wow, we're on a roll, aren't we? Most of your adult life, you were a teacher mm -hmm. and a teacher of teachers. Yep. You used to tell me that teaching is a subversive activity. <laughs> what did you mean by that? <laughs> did I say that? Yes, I did. Teaching is a subversive activity. If you're doing it right, if you're not, do if you if you're not doing it right, then that's one of the ways you know you're not doing it right is that you're not being subversive enough. By subversive, I mean you're undermining people's assumptions. Um, you know, we all think we know, well, this wonderful professor I, I told you about, he drew a circle on the blackboard one day. That's how old I am. We had blackboards. And, and uh, he drew a circle on the board, and he took this tiny, he drew this tiny little piece of pie out of it. And he uh, wrote on the board above the circle with an arrow, that's what you know. <laughs> then he did another tiny little, you see where I'm going, right? He drew another tiny little piece of the pie and he, with an arrow pointing to it, and he said, that's what you don't know. And the whole rest of the pie is what you don't know you don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that just seemed always like so yeah. true to me. And I wanted to keep I wanted to keep exploring that area of what I don't, you know, don't know. That I don't know, I don't know, mm -hmm. um, and push, and that's subversive. I think uh, people want to stay safe in their own little piece of the pie, and and be comfortable, and and they come into the classroom. Students often complain, like, "This is hard." Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> well did you just want to come in and yeah. do the same old thing? Well, then why did you come to 
school. Well, right. Go away. Leave me alone if you don't want to learn anything. Learning is all about getting outside what you already know, and, and that makes you feel uncomfortable. So when people start squirming and complaining and resisting, at least in, in one sense, that can, that's often a sign, like, yeah, I'm doing my job. They're getting uncomfortable, and so they're being challenged to think in new and different ways and, and incorporate information and knowledge and ideas that... Um, that have to be processed before you reject or accept them, and and they're working on that. So it's subversive in that way. It's just I used to do a workshop way back in the day called um, um, Gorilla Pedagogy, <laughs> which is, which now is just a hilarious title to me, Gorilla Pedagogy. But that's what I was was tr- kind of after this sort of. Sneaky behind, not sneaky, that's wrong, but um, th- this way of sort of under, undermining what people already know or think they know. Um, and they aren't quite aware of it yet, and as they start to become aware of it, they get spooked. Sometimes they get really excited, because that is why they're there. Um, yeah, that's subversive. Thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, you were also involved in local theater, and you still do poetry and dance performances. What you, what got you into performance, and what is its appeal for you? Why do you like to perform? Wow. Now that, you took me by surprise with that question. Um, <laughs> well, I think I discovered performing um, in high school and uh, first in a place, we, we lived in a place, I won't mention its name, we lived in a place where I was more a foreigner. It was in this country, mm-hmm. I was, but I felt more a foreigner there than I had when we lived in Taiwan. Um, and, and I was completely outcast and, um, and, a, a, and I was always getting in trouble in study hall. And I was getting, um, they call them licks. It's where you get hit on the butt with a wooden paddle. Wow. Yes. That'll give you a hint. This was in the southern part of the United States. Yes. <laughs> if you hadn't guessed yet. And, and, and this, the teacher who was responsible for the study hall just hated doing it. And when we got up to 32 um, licks, he's like, oh, man, listen. I'm the musical director of the um, musical theater production um, we're about to start. Would, why don't you get involved? Come on out. I'll see that you get at least into the chorus. And, oh, and, and you won't get beat. And then maybe we, you'll like uh, stop being such a pain in my places. Um, and he was so wise, and I, I just am so grateful to him. Mr. Yarborough was his name. And, and uh, so he was true to his word, and I just found this group of people. I found a place where I could belong. It was fun. It, it was also hard work, and the spotlight was incredible. I mean, we'd get on stage. The first time people laughed at something I did or said was, like, marvelous. So then the, the, my senior year in high school, my father went to, was in Vietnam, and we moved again to a brand-new place, this small town in, in Iowa, where everyone had been together all 12 years of schooling and 
I didn't know anybody, and they didn't know me from anybody. I was a stranger, which in a small town in Iowa, at least in those days, was not a good thing. And again, theater, like, saved me. Um, mm. It gave me a place to belong, to express myself, and I was good at it. So I got lots of rewards and attention. I even thought for a while, like, I should go to, I should go be an actor. Yeah. <laughs> um, but nowadays, it's more about expressing um, it's just a wonderful way of making something come alive. In class, when I would read poems, students would say to, things like, um, when I read that, I couldn't understand it. But when you read it aloud, it's, it's like the poem or the story kind of opened up in a way, and, and, and I could see into it for the first time. And so... That felt really special, that, that I was offering something in that way that allowed others to see something they couldn't see before. Uh, so it, it felt like maybe a, maybe a gift, yeah. even, that I, w that I was really good at that. Um, and, and, and to be honest, I, I like to show off a little, too. <laughs> <laughs> so I've heard actors say that they get to be who they are when they're on stage. It brings out their sort of hidden personality and they can be a lot of things. And it kind of sounds like that's what you're are we saying. In are we in therapy here? That, yeah. <laughs> <Not> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, for sure. Uh, it's also a trap. It's, it's wonderful because it, it, I, I grew up in an environment, I mean, I'm a white man. That means in my culture, there were two emotions allowed, anger and none. Um, and I think that's pretty true across cultures. At least that's been my, over my lifetime of, of encountering numerous men from numerous different cultures. We always struggle with feelings. So it was a way to identify feelings and express feelings and explore feelings in ways I wasn't allowed to as a child. Um, it's not that it was forbidden by my parents. It just was like culturally... It, it never occurred to me to think of, to even, I'd be able to identify a feeling, but on stage you can like really express it in a way that feels real. The trap is that sometimes you can be caught in this extrovert role and people will confuse, even you, and I myself, it's happened to me, um, not just on, in stage, but even in the classroom uh, or, or in other ways, that the roles you play aren't quite you. They're aspects of you. Mm -hmm. and, and other parts of you are being neglected. Um, mm -hmm. Like an, an introvert, maybe there's an introvert side to you, which I discovered was true of me. Um, and that introvert would often get ignored as when I would be like performing, and, mm -hmm. you know. I just saw a former student, she said, she told, she said to my wife, like, he has to get up on the desk in the classroom and dance. <laughs> like, that's crazy. Like, yeah, okay. But so then if you're like quiet and shy or withheld or, I don't know, you're always putting energy out there and I wasn't always getting enough back. So that's kind of one of the dangers. But I learned how to deal with that too, eventually. After most of a lifetime. <laughs> We're always learning. I know, We're right? Always learning. I think that's the key. All right, Wayne, after you retired, 
among many things, you taught poetry at the Sterling Correctional Center. I have a quotation uh, from an interview you did with Colorado Public uh, Radio mm -hmm. on how the prisoners in Sterling may benefit from poetry. It's not something you know we usually think about as prison and poetry. So you said, Art in general, but poetry in particular, has a way of accessing inner resources that a person may not otherwise be aware of. And those inner resources are the kinds of characteristics, qualities, strengths that can help a person be more resilient. I don't want to get too metaphorical because prison is a nasty place to be. And yet, everyone is, a kind, is in a kind of prison. Parkinson's is a kind of prison, if you will. Hmm. And to write your way out without leaving is a thing I think poetry can do. So tell me, yeah. what can you tell us about that experience? And is there a poem you could read that expresses that experience? Yeah, person? yeah. Um, I mean, it's still to me the most, I've, the most extraordinary experience one of the most extraordinary experiences of my entire life was to go into that prison and meet the men I met there, um, some of whom are still very close friends, even closer friends than um, when I was a volunteer and, and would go there for the poetry workshops I led. Um, that, uh, that way of being in a place where, where you can't escape and it's not a nice place to be um, it's a painful place to be it's a hopeless place to be it's full of despair and rage and violence even if it's not external there's always it's always stirring in that way I don't know that describes a lot of people not just prisoners but for sure it's it's those incarcerated and yet there are men I met, and I know there are women too in, in women's prisons, but there were men I met who like found powerful ways, meaningful ways to still have a life and to serve others and to keep growing um, even there so that they, they were determined to not, for their lives not to be on hold Mm -hmm. even though they're all waiting to get out, or m most of them. I had some lifers. I, I have some mm -hmm. friends who are lifers and, um, of course, and will never get out, will die in prison. Mm -hmm. um, but they could still have a life. And it wasn't a, usually not a sudden turnaround, but that transformation... Um, I wanted to learn more about how to be that, how to do that in my own life. Mm -hmm. Um, and the Parkinson's connection was from the first time we met. Um, I did a, I used to do a poem. Well, I, the first time I went into the prison to, to be, a, I was a guest there. A former student invited me to come and uh, give a graduation speech uh, to some of her students who were getting their GEDs. GEDs, no. Yeah, that's right, GEDs. And so I did that, and then she invited me to her classroom and invited some um, um, of the incarcerated men to come and hear me read some of my poems. And this is the first poem I read. It's a direct reference to Parkinson's disease. 
Ai, 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 oh. Ja, hey, ja, hey. Ai, 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 oh. Hey, ja, hey, ja. Boblu, boblu. This morning I talked to my legs. I promised them a massage when we got home. If they would only carry me through the day. I said, legs, legs, we belong to each other. For nearly 70 years you have borne me well. I've taken good care of you. We have been excellent companions, but I will do better if you will help me go all the way today. I will not abuse you. I will care for you the way I cared for my children. I will spoil you the way this grandfather lavishes his life riches on his grandson. If you will take me now, if you will take me now, if you will take me now, again, today, again, this way, I will see you get good medicine. I will see you get good medicine so we will be strong enough tomorrow to carry on again, another day, again, another way, again. Ay, 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 oh, ya, hey, ya, hey. Ay, 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 oh, hey, ya, hey, ya, ya, hey. So I read that poem. Wow, thank you. And, and, and a hand shot up from one of the incarcerated gentlemen in the room. Now, you know, I've been, I spent a lot of time in classrooms and, and doing readings, and I never had anybody, like, want to make a comment or ask a question right away. And he said to me, I said, yes. And he said, you know, we can really relate to that in here, to that poem in here, because we never know, you know, how it's going to be during this day. And during the day when we get up and what's going to happen and how things are going to unfold and how we're going to hold up. And I was blown away. I thought, here's this old guy, this, this old white man in front of this classroom full of incarcerated men um, from backgrounds I can't even imagine. Um, and, and they relate. And I'm, t I'm writing about my Parkinson's and they get it. Like instantly. They get it, and heads are nodding around the room. Well, then I knew I was in a special place. Yes. And, and on the way home, I kept the, I have to do something about this. I said to myself, I have to do something about this. And that's how it got started, uh -huh. it was from that, that first response to um, the, the, my Parkinson's and their incarceration, like, sort of met. Um, wow. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know, this question might be redundant, but um, Parkinson's has become a big part of your life now. Mm -hmm. And um, it seems also, just as you've just shown us in that beautiful poem, uh, inspirational source for you. And, uh, and you, in turn, are teaching others and supporting others through your poetry and your classes. Um, if you don't mind, would you talk about what this journey has been like for you? And um, if you would like, you please feel free to share another poem. Okay, that's the that's the best way to talk about what it's been like for me. I guess is is uh, are the poems, um, and I'll start with a poem. One of the things I discovered very soon was. Uh, with Parkinson's was that metaphors really matter. Mm -hmm. The metaphors we use 
for our lives really matter, especially metaphors for chronic illness or or really difficult periods of our lives. Metaphors, the metaphors you use matter. And the metaphors that are most popular uh, in our culture are terrible because they're all about war and battle and soldier and fighting. And, and so th those metaphors set up a, 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 a duality, you know, an opposition. Everything is in opposition. And the idea is to, that you have to be a winner Mm -hmm. um, or a loser. Yeah. Well, Parkinson's automatically means you're a loser because it's progressive, it's degenerative, there's no cure, um, there's not much in terms of uh, effective treatment except for certain symptoms. Um, so that's, what does it mean to win? Why, and I'm too tired to fight. <laughs> Fighting takes a kind of energy that most people with Parkinson's don't have, especially as we age. So... Um, Here's a poem about kind of a turning point for me. It's called P.D. Refusenik. Just so you know, I don't battle Parkinson's. I refuse to go to any kind of war, show up with any soldierly intentions. We are not enemies. I have no inner military industrial complex pouring out weapons. No mother of all bombs to lay waste my symptoms. I'm a draft dodger from way back, a pacifist seeker of wisdom. Conscientious objector will not comply with your combat commands. I will not personify Parkinson's. I'm the only person here. Parkinson's is that part of me makes some days harder than others. My body is not a war zone not a battlefield. My body is not a target for high-tech weapons. This is my body. This is my body. My, my body is beloved. My body requires care. My body needs compassion, tenderness. My body wants relief, longs for mercy. This is my body, my body. This is, this is my body. This is my body, my Beloved, my body is beloved. Beloved, this body, this body is beloved. This body is me. Whoa. That's so powerful and so beautiful, Wayne. Thank you. Yeah, I think the whole notion of care, of a, of a, of a body, of having a chronic illness um, or chronic pain, I think it's more effective. For me, it's certainly more effective, and I believe for most others. It's more effective to search for metaphors that are about caring and compassion and mercy and tenderness mm -hmm. than it is to encourage people to take up weapons and fight somehow. Um, not everyone in the Parkinson's community agrees with me, but, um, but we don't fight it out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so that, that's what I call metaphor medicine. That's what I, I started when I started working doing Parkinson's poems and working with other people with Parkinson's to write poems, I called this, that search for those, those uh, compassionate metaphors, metaphor medicine. Um, and, uh, well, I have a poem written by Joe Van Coverden of uh, Ontario, Canada. He's in my, one of my two poetry groups. We meet monthly on Zoom. He recently wrote this poem, and I have his permission to read it. It's called Medicine of Choice. I sit restless 
at the computer trying to calm my mind to a state of peacefulness to write a poem. I am confused a little, wondering if the poem is the prize or is the writing the reward? Is this a dilemma akin to the chicken and egg or would the analogy of the horse and the cart be more applicable? We take a lot of meds to avoid the symptoms of PD. So perhaps this is simply just that, self-administered medication. Taking this med requires stillness in thought and time to allow the words to flow, emotions to be released, muscles become relaxed. I'm a more gentle man when I have taken this medication and enjoy the reward of sharing my words in our community. Very nice, and it just really goes with your poem. Right? Yeah, thank you. Beautifully. Thank you. Okay. It's like sometimes after reading, I feel like we just have a moment of appreciation. <laughs> That's okay. Um, <laughs> thank you. I wanted to ask you about dancing. Ah. Another quotation from Colorado Public Radio interview speaks to some of your thoughts about how creativity helps you, but not so much on how sharing and giving you are. So here's your quote. What struck me most when I first started dancing was how it focused on what I could do or doing things I never thought of doing, as opposed to all the things I've lost or am losing. And it speaks to your yeah. poem. When I'm dancing, when I'm making a poem, when I'm acting in a play, I can forget that I have Parkinson's for a little while. So what, what inspires you to keep on going, to keep on sharing, to keep on giving? You're, you're so generous with your care, with your creativity, with your joie de vivre, <laughs> and, yeah. and your love. It's just, it just pours from you. Well, I, thank you. That's very generous. Um, the answer is so cheesy and so cliche and so simple that um, I, I'm a little embarrassed to say it, but it's true. It's, it's, I can't, I just really don't want to live without a purpose. And, and mm -hmm. that's a kind of purpose that, that gives as much as I do. Mm -hmm. In other words, I get as much back as sometimes I think even more than I'm, I'm giving. Um, and, and that, that still feeds me, um, in vital ways, makes me feel that I have some reason still for being on this planet. Um, and there are moments that I wonder, you know, that I doubt, like, why am I still here? What's the point? Mm. You know, uh, there are days that Parkinson's and other issues of aging particularly are just overwhelming and seem so pointless and futile and, and I despair. Um, and then I might say something like, oh, I need to stop doing these poetry groups. And, and, my, and Alice, my wife, will say, um, so how do you feel after um, you've met with the other poets? Like, well, always, like, wonderful. For hours. She said, not for hours. It's like days afterwards. You're still, like, blah, 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 chattering uh, about it. Like, yeah. So I think that's, for some reason, I don't quite understand yet 
my poems have a way of speaking for some people, and they appreciate that, but also to some people. And then the third thing I would say is that they often have a way also of like prompting others to want to give it a try. And then they discover how meaningful it is. Um, and if not this creativity, then something else, mm -hmm. dancing, painting, um, sculpting, whatever. That, that it's the creativity that allows us to like lose ourselves in, in the best positive, most wonderful way um, and find the source of that energy that makes, it, makes life good because there are so many things about life that aren't so good and are really difficult um, and, and won't get out of my face unless I lose myself in a journal page, say, and trying to write a poem, or, or even listening to music often makes a difference. Thank you. So, three of us, we're, we're all retired now. Yes, we are. And um, we're kind of retired. Dealing, kind of, with, yeah. dealing with the issue, well, from formal employment. Yes, right. And we're all dealing with issues of aging, yeah. as you were kind of mentioning there. Um, and um, you said that uh, the other day when we were having a conversation that there weren't a lot of role models for mm. aging now. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, it's kind of like, how do we navigate um, this aging process? Would you talk a little bit about that? Uh, I think that's... Honestly, I think that's, for me, has become, at this moment in my life, this has become uh, sort of a renewed purpose. I want to be an elder, and an elder in the traditional sense. Um, in former times, you know, the village, the tribe, the clan, the... Um, old people had a role to play and um, eldering was a verb <laughs> um, it didn't just mean you know old grumpy man rocking in chair on porch screaming at children to stay off lawn you know mm -hmm. or whatever the stereotype might be it, it meant contributing to the community in meaningful ways and people would come to you for you know there, there are life transitions um, that are often really difficult, and, and an elder can have some insight into that. You know, I have a I have a long life to look back on, and and I've met a lot of people and had a lot of experiences, um, and I think from those I still have something to offer. But my experience of aging and and those of some of my best friends have been there's nobody to sort of. There was no one to elder us into eldering. Mm -hmm. There's no training. There's no book to read. Mm -hmm. Well, there are some, a handful of wonderful books that are helpful. Um, it's like dying. Um, there's no, it's just something we don't talk about that we don't make room for. It's, you're just supposed to like figure it out on your own. Mm -hmm. There's no landmarks. There's no GPS for getting old. Um, and that's not right. That's not the way it should be. It makes it so much harder yeah. than it might otherwise be. And it's hard enough as it is. So I, I'm, I'm really more and more interested in kind of playing that role 
I guess, in thinking of myself in that way, um, and, and maybe helping some others. I'm working on a collection of poems now that are kind of along those lines of not exactly a guidebook, but sort of a, here are some hints about how you might approach this. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Are any of those poems um, available for, for us to hear? <laughs> um, we have time for maybe one more. One more. Um, let me see. So this is an example of one of my, I call them palliative care poems, but the purpose behind them that I'm thinking of is, is to offer some hints about how to, how to navigate and negotiate this period, the, the, the last period of our lives. This one is called Dignity. Dignity for Rita Bornstein, Ph.D., a woman I know, devastated by back-to-back -back hurricanes, Parkinson's disease, more than 80 trips around the sun, keeps on writing poems, one word at a time. The flame, her son reports, still burns. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah, I like that. I, I, Rita's a very, Rita's a very special lady. Who, who's, yeah, that's a story for another time. Okay, I know there's lots and lots of other stories for other times, <laughs> um, but we've kind of come to uh, end of the questions that I that we have prepared. So. Um, Anything that you'd like to add, I know there's so much more that we could talk about, but anything that you would particularly like to add and then maybe um, maybe another poem? I, I'll just, this poem, this poem expresses the metaphor that has helped me the most. Um, and it's a metaphor that's big enough so far to speak to every situation I've encountered and anticipated. And it's a big metaphor. Um, the poem is called, It's All Jazz, Nurturing Resilience. It's all jazz, man. Improvise, listen, incorporate, integrate, improvise, listen, feel deeply, play, listen. Feel further in, further down, play that. Listen, improvise, feel each note, each space between. Feel the way notes run together, make a phrase. Anticipate, improvise, incorporate, integrate. Listen, play, play, listen. Feel, anticipate, no wrong notes, only new moments, opportunities to listen, improvise, trust. I said, trust your ear, your heart, your voice, your deepest affections, emotions, questions, celebrations, fears, feel without thinking, flow the way water always flows toward free free expression, free feeling, free spirit, no matter the pain, play that. No matter the suffering, play that. No matter despair, anxiety, depression, death, play that. 
all the ways you hurt and up and play that. All the little things bring you pleasure and joy. Play that. Feel it all. Improvise, incorporate. Improvise, integrate. Above all, before all, during the entire set we call this life. Listen, feel. Go with that. Play. You're the instrument. You are the instrumentalist. You are the source, the sound, the rhythm and flow. You are the music itself. It's all jazz, man. It's all jazz, woman. There's only this one night in this particular club we call Earth. So play. Freely play. Put it all out there. The jam is for cooking, man. The jam is for everybody. It's all jazz. Play it. Oh, wait. I think this is the quietest I have ever been in my life because <laughs> this has just been fascinating listening to you and your approach to life. And it's amazing. It's wonderful. It's yeah. beautiful. It's beautiful. Thank you. And um, I wish our listeners could have watched you <laughs> um, because uh, Wayne's hand gestures. I mean, when you read poetry, I think it's kind of how you live your life. You are there. You are 100% there, body, soul. Thank you. Yeah. It's kind of a dance. Reading is kind of a dance. Physically speaking, even. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. It was great. What a pleasure this has been. I thank you both so much. Wow. It's been Um, my treat. I was getting chills. (laughs) um, Absolutely. I am a family, I have to admit. (laughs) So thank you so much for this interview, Wayne Gilbert. Um, So anything else you'd like to add? That was a fantastic poem. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I'd like to mention that the, uh, the Institute for Poetic Medicine has been supportive of my work, both in the prison and um, regarding people with Parkinson's, doing the metaphor medicine work. The Institute for Poetic Medicine has a wonderful website. I'm a poetry partner. Also, the Davis Finney Foundation um, is very supportive of my work, and uh, they are an advocacy and educational foundation for people with Parkinson's. you can go to their website, davisfinneyfoundation.org, and you can find a number of video recordings of many of my Parkinson's poems there on their website, davisfinneyfoundation.org, and look for Wayne Gilbert Poems. I think it's under there. And if you want to hear some of my other Parkinson's poems, those are available there. Thank you. And we will put that in our show notes. Thank you. Okay. so. Uh, to our listeners, let us know if there's someone in your community that you would like us to interview. We plan to interview one person a month, and there are so many people in our communities across the state that have contributed to making Colorado a healthier, more equitable, beautiful, more democratic place for us all. So please email us your questions or concerns to Dr. Nan, that's dr.nann at gmail.com. If you have comments or suggestions for others that you think we would like to interview, please send those to 
drnan, D-R dot N-A-N-N at gmail.com. And from Carolyn Bowler, Dan Jackson, our sound engineer, and me, Nancy Jackson, stay safe, be healthy, and age well. Thank you.